because this is actually two lessons in one. So um, one thing I just ask, if you have questions, just save them to the end, unless you hear some type of heresy or something, you can interrupt. But if you have just normal questions, just uh, save them to the end. If we have a chance, then I'll you know, ask for questions. If not, then of course I'm available after this or after the service. Um, so I'm going to have a word of prayer and then ask everyone to turn to Philippians 2. So you can kind of flip to Philippians 2 while I am um, open up in prayer. Uh, gracious God, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the truth that we find in it. In your word, we find life. And in your word is the only source that we can go to, to understand life, to understand, to know you, and to even know ourselves. So we pray, God, that as we today talk about the person of Jesus Christ, that we will understand who we serve even more, and that will cause us to dive deeper into worship. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so so everyone has Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. If you have your book that we're going through, the Fundamentals of the Faith book, this is lesson 4 on, starts on page 67. So if you have your book, you can turn to 67. I believe it's, it's actually might be different, I'm not sure, because we might have different versions. So if it's different than 67, the beginning of lesson 4, someone just shout out what page that's on. Lesson 4 begins for you. I just realized that it might be different. 35? Okay, so 35. Wow, they put a lot in the other. <laughs> so uh, page 35, lesson four. Um, I'm walking through some of the questions here, so hopefully you've you know, kind of read through some of these things. So Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, it reads, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And this, of course, is talking about Jesus Christ here. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the first question uh, that is asked in, in Lesson 4, page 35, is uh, question A. It's 1A. It says, what does Philippians 2, 6 say about Jesus before he became a man? So what does it say? What do we just read in Philippians 2, 6 about Christ? So he was equal with God. So in the beginning and before the incarnation, the Bible says that he existed in the form of God. And this word form, you may recognize at least a part of this, is a Greek word, morphe. And it means more than just form as in like a picture of, but it's more that his nature, his essence was divine. Was, was godly. So it wasn't that he was just a figure or a name. We can throw out a lot of names of false gods and they're given, in the human realm, they're given all these um, qualities of divinity but it's just empty. There's no substance because they aren't real. They're, they're made by man. They're made by the hands of man in some cases and others, the imagination of man. But this wasn't the case with Jesus. He existed in the form, his very nature, his essence. He had the character, the characteristics of, of God. And it says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And if anyone has their uh, King James, I don't know, I think I saw Chris earlier, but he might be serving somewhere. But um, the old King James uh, says he thought it not robbery. Thought it not robbery. And I used to go to church all the time and hear people say that for random stuff. A visitor would show up and he'd be like, I'm glad you thought it not robbery to show up today. And <laughs> but this, this word, this term, it actually, it's talking more about something that had to be grasped and held on to. So it initially talked about uh, robbery, that's something that would just be snatched. But then it grew to just mean anything that you hold dear and you hold close, you grab it, you hold it. And so he did not regard his equality with God. So he had equality with God. He did not regard it um, something he had to hold on to for two reasons. 
One, because he had a mission that required taking on humanity. And part of that meant, and we'll see in a second, that he chose to set aside certain divine uh, rights, if you will, or certain divine characteristics or use of, of certain parts of his divinity. Um, and I'm being very careful in how we say that because you can easily say things about Christ that the Bible doesn't say when we try to understand how he was fully God and fully man. Um, so he knew he, he had this mission, but he also knew that it was a temporary laying aside of his divine privileges, that it wasn't something permanent. So it wasn't something he had to grasp or hold on to that he would never see again. But it was something that he would once again experience after his mission was complete. So this first thing we understand about God, about, about Jesus Christ particularly, is that he was man. And, you know, many, so before we get saved, I think we have a problem, many in the world have a problem with seeing Jesus Christ as God and understanding the divinity. It's easy to say, oh, he's just a good man. He walked the earth. We know that. It's a historical fact that he lived. But that's all I'll give you. Or I'll give you that he did some good things, some nice things. He taught well. But that's all I'll give you. But once we become saved and we understand that he is really God, I think sometimes we have a hard time remembering and realizing that he was also fully man. And so, at least for me, I don't, I don't focus on that as often. And we'll talk about in a second like why it's important that we do think about and focus on Jesus Christ's humanity. Um, so the next question, uh, which is letter B, says, according to Philippians 2, 7, what did Jesus do? Sorry? He made himself a servant. And he came in the likeness of man. So this is what he did. Why? Because he had a mission. So he took the form, and the word form here is the same word that was used in verse 6 to talk about uh, him have, being in the form of God. So it's the same idea, the same way he was God, and or is God, but, but existed as God before the incarnation. After the incarnation, he was man in the same way, fully man. So it wasn't that he was half God, half man, or some other type of mix like that. He was He took on the fullness of humanity, and already had the fullness of divinity. And that's a hard thing to understand. And I'm not going to try to take the next 50 minutes and try to explain exactly how that's possible because some things we don't fully understand because we have no example of it in our own human understanding. There's nothing that we can relate it to. We can't say, well, this person's a, a daughter and a mother, and it's kind of the same. You have two different roles in this. Some people use those things to even describe the Trinity, and those things always break down because they don't represent the fullness of, of the character and quality of God. So I'm going to go in and look a little bit more. You can follow in the book. I'm not doing exactly everything that, that um, is there, of course, but... Uh, letter C just says Jesus was fully human, and under letter C there's some um, verses that hopefully you looked up. There were some things that Jesus did that shows his humanity, and they're very basic things that the Bible says he grew in wisdom. Right? He grew in wisdom and stature, and he grew in favor uh, with God and men. That didn't mean that, that Jesus didn't know anything and just had to learn everything, but as a human, just, just think about this. Jesus had to learn how to walk. Jesus came as an infant and had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to eat, had to develop. His actually had a body that had to develop the ability to do these things and the ability to talk and the other things as we see babies grow now. But he didn't have a sinful nature. But he still grew in those things. He grew in even understanding of, of human interaction and a different level than being God looking down. And so we talked before, I think it was uh, for Good Friday, and uh, one of the points uh, that I brought out then was the purpose of Jesus coming as a man. And he came as a man so he could fully uh, represent us on the cross. He came as a man so he can be our perfect sacrifice. And it wasn't just God dying. It was a man who lived 33 years, fulfilled the law completely in his humanity, 
and then paid the price for our sin as a perfect sinless sacrifice. And that's the why it's so important to remember Jesus as a man and Jesus' humanity because he wasn't just God walking around in a, in a human shell, but that he was actually a human. He took on humanity. So he was a God-man, as, as we typically say. So he grew in wisdom. Uh, he became tired. Mark 4.38 says, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And if you remember there, they were on a boat, and the, the waves were crashing into the boat, and they're all panicking for their lives. And they look down, and Jesus is asleep because he was so tired. And he was, he was asleep, and then, of course, he woke up and said, You don't have much faith, and he calmed the sea. But um, there we see he was tired. He was hungry. When he was uh, tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, he didn't eat. For 40 days. And the Bible says that when it ended, he became hungry. Just like a human. So he was a man. He became exhausted. The Bible says that he was weary. And um, these are all, again, points that are in here. Point number four uh, says that how did Jesus feel after a journey? John 4, 6. John 4, 6. And at Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the wall. And it was about the sixth hour. So he became weary, he became tired, he mourned and cried, John 11.35 tells us that Jesus wept. And I think it's significant there that he wept because he cried over the death of his friend that he was about to raise from the dead. So he wasn't crying that, oh, I'm going to miss Lazarus, and that's it. He was crying just over the fact that death even exists as a reality in our world, in a world that he created that was perfect and sinless. And it became marred and became corrupted so that death entered. And he, he became sad and began to mourn that fact. And so I think it's very important here to see that Jesus, in his humanity, experienced even the emotions that we experience. And even standing before us today as our great high priest, he still is one who understands those emotions. He understands how it feels to be a human and to be physically weakened and not able to do something that you want to do. He understands the, the, the complexity of relationships, that where there's ebbs and flows, and, and there's times when relationships are great and high, and there's times that you actually have to fight through things, and he witnesses. I mean, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that Joseph and Mary had arguments, but uh, if they did, just imagine Jesus watching and, you know, watching his mother and father argue. And he created this perfect world. And he created them. And they're sitting here in conflict. Two people that he created. And five, six years old, he's not going to be able to say enough to get them to realize that their argument is, is senseless and they should be serving God together since they both were believers. Um, just imagine those types of things. When we think about just the plain everyday stuff that Jesus went through as a man. <clears throat> and being God, we always say he didn't have to. He didn't have to. It wasn't that the Godhead's existence was incomplete without us. But we're here and he saved us because of his love. Not because there was, he was incomplete and needed us to, to, to fill some type of void. God was and always is perfect. But even with a resurrected body, Luke 24, 39 says that after he was resurrected and there were some that were doubting, he shows up and he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So it's also important to know he was resurrected with his body. His body was glorified, so he doesn't have hunger and doesn't have these things and doesn't now get tired. But Jesus was resurrected with his body. And after he was resurrected, said, look at my wounds. Look at the wounds that I have. Isn't that enough proof to see that it's really me? That it's not just a hallucination of the other uh, disciples, but it's really me. So again, we see in his humanity that he experienced things that we did, and he did it so that he can be our substitute. Now, we want to look at his divinity. 
which I think we talk about a lot, um, but it's still it's extremely important for two reasons. One, we can never exhaust the idea of Jesus being God. Because, again, it's so foreign to us in every other walk of life, in every other religion. If Jesus is mentioned, he's mentioned as a man. And so to understand that Jesus is God is, is important for that. It's also important when we're talking to other people. We should know what we believe and why we believe it. You know, if I ask you, why, is, why do you say Jesus is God? Why would you worship him? He was born. Why would you worship him? And we have to be able to answer that question for ourselves and even witnessing to other people. That is one of the key points of our faith is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we should be able to, to talk smoothly about that with other people because it's something we believe. It's not just something we learned and we believe that someone else was, was right when he said it. I heard a sermon one day and they said that. So uh, they told me I just have to believe it. Now I believe it but we have to know it for ourselves. And so there's some things about Jesus' divinity, and so this is on the next page, I believe, so I'm guessing it's page 36, might still be on 35, but again, moving to section 2, says the man who is God. And so in that box A, under attributes, if you looked up some of those, I'm going to look at a couple of those now. If you looked up those, this is, this is what we're talking about, so where we're pulling that through. So these are things that we see about Jesus that are, we just went through the last two weeks, Dr. Ho taught us about the attributes of God. And these are some of the attributes that we see about Jesus, showing us that Jesus is God. So he was sovereign. That's when Matthew 28, 18 says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. When he was resurrected, he rose with all power in his hand, the Bible says. And so he has all authority. He is sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And Jesus either is blaspheming or he is God. And that's the only options that we're left with. If anybody ever questions Jesus' divinity, that's the only options that we're left with. He is eternal. John 1, 1 through 3, I'm actually looking at a different uh, verse than what's in that um, box. So John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has not come into being. So in simple terms, Jesus did not have a beginning. He always existed, and he created everything that we see that it currently exists. And there was nothing that exists outside of his creation. So he created everything as God. He's unchanging or immutable. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same. He does not change. And I think it's even good to see that. And that's why I'm being careful with my language talking about before the incarnation and after, because Jesus did not change who he is. He does not change. He does not change his, his position before us. He does not change how he responds to us. Even salvation itself has never changed. Even before Christ, you were saved through faith. And so what we see now is that we already have the promise before they look for the promise. But the promise never changed. It's just that it happened already. It came to being. And we see Jesus as the word becoming flesh. Next thing we see is he's sinless. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I forgot which uh, apocryphal book it is, but there is some book, um, I don't remember, some, some false gospel, actually, that talks about Jesus sinning. It could be the gospel according to Barnabas or Thomas or something like that, but it's some non-biblical uh, book that's uh, filled with false accounts, and one of them is that Jesus sinned when he was a child. And basically, whoever wrote it couldn't, they were looking at children and couldn't understand a child being sinless. And I'm sure all the parents are trying to wonder what that looks like themselves. But 
they talked about Jesus, you know, getting angry because he was told not to do certain things and because he had this divine power, he would use his powers to maybe zap somebody or something like that. It was just really weird, almost like some sci-fi movie or something. But there are people who believe that's a true account. And they say, well, Jesus had sin because of this, but the Bible testifies over and over that Jesus was sinless. Uh, Jesus is holy, Acts 3, 14 and 15. Uh, it says, but you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And that's also important as well, is that the Bible was written by witnesses of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. And they preached to witnesses. And he even is saying, this is what you did. You called for a murderer to be released instead of Jesus Christ to be released. The holy and righteous one. And so we see those terms that are only used for God, being holy and righteous, in character, not just a nice person or even a godly person, but he was perfect, holy and righteous. He was true or the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was God. He had full divinity. And now, this is also in the book, um, he had power over certain things. He exercised authority over things that only God would have authority over. And because of that, we can see that he is God as well. So after the attributes, it says Christ demonstrated his power in his earthly ministry in the following ways, and it lists some things there. So again, if you're kind of following and you did that, um, there's, there's one that I want to go into, but um, the others I'll just kind of move through quickly, and one I want us to, to focus on a little bit. So uh, the first, he had his power over creation. And I'll read that one, Matthew 8, 23 to 27. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep, and they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. So he had power over creation itself. And we talked earlier, he got, he got tired and he slept. And this is going on. They're saying, save us, we're perishing, we're about to die. And he sleeps because he had power over creation. He got up and just told the wind and the waves to calm down, and they calmed down. Does anybody remember, I don't remember who it was, but one of the kind of faith teachers uh, there was a hurricane, and they said that they stood up, like like got on the roof of the church and had their Bible, and they commanded the hurricane not to hit. That's yeah, my mind says it too. It's either Kenneth Copeland or Creflo Dollar. I don't know which one, but um, it was one of those who said that, and I think the hurricane still hit, of course, because no man has power over creation, but. They saw God do it and said, oh, well, we could do it too because we have God's power. Um, sort of true. We do have some power of God. We don't have God's authority, uh, especially over creation. We can't just command the wind to stop blowing. We can't command it to stop raining. So over sickness and disease, uh, Luke chapter 4, chapter four, verse 40, says, while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. So he had power over sickness and disease. And he had power over demons as well, which is actually connected, because sometimes the sickness and disease came from demonic activity. So he had power over sickness, power over disease, because he is God. And one thing we see is that he even gave that power to the apostles. 
He gave them the ability to drive out demons, and we'll look at a verse about demons in a second, and sickness and disease. So he had the, the, the power and the authority not only to uh, get rid of sickness and disease himself, but to give it to his immediate apostles as well. And they went on carrying out their ministry, especially in the very early parts of the church in a, in a you know, couple decades after Jesus died and was resurrected, gave them this power, and they went out healing people, casting out sicknesses, and preaching the gospel. So he not only had power over those things, but he had the authority to give that power to others. Uh, he had power over demons. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 33 to 36. And again, this is in the book, uh, point number three. Uh, it says, in the synagogue, Luke 4, 33 to 36. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon all them. And they began talking with one another. What is this message? For what with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So he had the power not only to drive them out, but to tell them where to go. And they knew that. So whenever he came, they were fearful when he entered the room. So Jesus was God. We see it over and over because not only did he have these characteristics of divinity, not only did he receive worship and, 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 and he received it and did not rebuke people who worshipped him and you're only to worship God, but he showed his power and authority over things that only God would have power and authority over. Death. And we mentioned this a little bit earlier with Lazarus but in John 11, verses 43 and 44. It reads, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So this is, again, his friend who had died. And wasn't in a, he, he had died in, you know, in that moment. He had died, was, was wrapped, prepared, and then buried. And then a couple days later, he showed up and was so late on the scene that Lazarus' sister said, why didn't you get here sooner? If only you would have gotten here sooner, he would not have died because he was sick and they went for Jesus. You should have got here sooner. But Jesus had power over death itself. And while I'm not saying he took his time, but he had other things to attend to, knowing that when he showed up, that Lazarus was dead, he would wake him up. And of course, that gave more glory to God, and it gave more proof to those around who he was. So it was good that he didn't come while he was still alive and just heal him, but he had to show that he actually had power over death. So when he said something like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, he was speaking because he had authority, and he had power over death because he is God. And he knew that God would raise him from the dead because he was able to raise people from the dead because he is God. Now, I want everyone to turn to Mark chapter 2. And I think this is, this is the big one for us. And this is, if you're looking in your book and you answered this, the question says, what additional authority did Jesus claim and exercise? So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. And we're just going to kind of, kind of walk through the narrative here. So Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. Um, so, verse 3, the story starts out, he is, he's healing people. Right? He's in a, a, a house healing people. Um, and verse 3 says, They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, 
they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So you see here, they, they couldn't get him in. There was a big crowd. They're carrying him like on a stretcher, four of them, and they're carrying this man who's paralyzed and can't walk on his own. They can't get him through the crowd. So they go up to the, to the upper level you know, they, they, with stairs up outside. They walked up, and they were able to, to dig a hole through the, through the roof, through the ceiling, and they let him down. So, I mean, if you could imagine that, if the, if the ceiling just opens up now and we see a stretcher coming down because people wanted their friend to get so close to Brian that they just dropped it. Oh, it wouldn't be me. It had to, it had to be somebody else. You're in the front row. So, you know, they wanted it so bad, so they, they dig down and hopefully they don't hit the fan, and they put down and, and have this stretcher right here with this paralyzed man on it, hoping that Jesus would heal him. And that was the amazing faith that his friends had. Because they knew he had power over sickness and disease. And Jesus, verse 5, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now stop there. That is a very strange thing to say to somebody who wants to be healed. He can't walk. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. that's, That's nice when my legs still don't work. I, I can't get up with forgiven sins. That's, that's nice. But so the, the, the scribes who were there, verse 6 talks about them, the scribes who were there understood the, the, the seriousness, the importance of that claim, of what Jesus said to him, that your sins are forgiven. He didn't say you were healed yet. Verse 6 says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Why? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the scribes are angry. And they said, well, he isn't just making some statement. He's claiming to be God. He is saying, I have the authority to declare your sins forgiven. I am forgiving your sins right now as you lay before me. And in verse 8, Jesus, he understood what they were, what they were thinking, what they were kind of murmuring. Says, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? So let's stop there. Answer the, let's answer that question. What's easier to say? There's a, there's a man laying here who's paralyzed, laying on a stretcher. What is easier for you to tell him? No other, just those phrases. I'm not saying you're going to tell him the gospel. You're going to tell him one of those two phrases. Either pick up your pallet and walk or your sins are forgiven. What's easier to say? Your sins are, why? Because no one's going to know. This, it's impossible to prove it. I can, I can say almost anything that happens that way. Your sins are forgiven. Like this. Okay. Now what? And nobody can prove me wrong. But the scribes understood how serious it was. Said, it could be true that his sins are forgiven, but now you're putting yourself in God's place. You're saying you're God by being able to tell this person his sins are forgiven. So Jesus said, it, it's, it's simpler to say that because there's no way I, I can prove that at least right in this moment. But, verse 10, Jesus says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he looked at the man, said to the paralytic, verse 11, he looked at him and said, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And you know what the man did? He picked it up and he went home. Jesus told him to, Jesus had authority. He proved he had authority to forgive sins by proving that he had authority over his physical body. What what was he really proving in that moment? That he is God. And so it wasn't, well, I'm a great doctor, so I must be able to forgive your sins as well. But he proved that he had the authority over all of creation. And because I'm God, I can declare to this person that his sins are forgiven. And so when he declares to us our sins are forgiven, 
if we believe the gospel. Do we believe it? I think that's a really important thing. We can sit and say, well, yeah, of course, he's God. But do we believe it? Do we believe it in the moments when we have despair? Do we believe it when we have a day that's less than perfect? Do we believe it when we sin badly and have to go to somebody and ask for forgiveness? Do we believe that God has forgiven us? And so in those moments, if you are truly saved, you must believe that you have God's forgiveness. Now, of course, we can go to Romans 6 and talk about whether that's a license to sin. Of course, it's not. But the, the, the truth is we have to have that confidence. We have to have that assurance that if Jesus is God to this paralytic, Jesus has to be God to us at all times and in all situations. And what did they say in verse 12? I love it. He got up immediately, picked up the pilot, went straight, went out the sight of everyone. So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. Many times when he preached, they were astonished and said, we've never heard anyone talk with such authority. He didn't have to refer to what some previous rabbi said. He stood and declared God's word because he was God. So there are... Um, a couple of other things I want us to look at. And I actually want to stop there and say, because we're doing good on time, does anybody have any questions or comments up to this point? No, that's good. Unless y'all are going to bombard me at, at 10.03. Um, if not, if not that's, that's, that's good that we're walking through. But it's, it's, it's the things that we know. We know that Jesus had humanity, we know that Jesus had divinity, right? They even you know, made up some really, really fancy term that we're not going to get into now to talk about that. When I learned the phrase hypostatic union, I, th oh, I thought I was deep. And it's just talking about him being a fully God, a fully man. But I learned the actual term for it. Man, I thought I was deep. Then I realized I still don't understand it any better. <laughs> I need to really get to know God better and not just learn the term. So this is, you know, we have to really chewing on this every day, the fact that God is man, that Jesus, that God was man and God is God. So he was 100% God, 100% man. That's why we say the God man. It wasn't some weird mix. So we look at these titles of deity, which is, I'm gonna, on, for me, it's on the next page. Um, but it's, again, in the book. And there are three that we see, and I'm going to focus on the third. So the first one is Emmanuel, um, which means God with us. And that's what, uh, um, sorry. Oh, okay. What was the purpose? Of, of Jesus delaying going to, to Lazarus. So I don't remember what he was doing, but he was, he was ministering, and he was on his way, but he was ministering. Yes, okay. Say, Judy, for God's glory. Yes. So I'm going to repeat that for just for the recording more than anything. Um, I think it's an excellent point that um, so the Jews believe, I don't know why I'm looking up, like maybe I'm looking at the camera, but the Jews believe that when someone died, maybe there was a chance that they weren't really dead. And so they could be in this state of kind of sleep or this, this kind of 
lower level of consciousness, and it was possible for them to wake up. But on the fourth day, they knew that he, that he was dead. And so that Jesus waited until that fourth day so they couldn't say, oh, he was just in that kind of subdued state of consciousness, and he wasn't really dead. So Jesus didn't perform a miracle. And so he went at the point where it would be impossible to deny the miracle. And that brought glory to God because they couldn't attribute it to anything else but God raising him from the dead. Yeah, thank you. It was a great point. Thank you, Judy, for answering that. Yes. I think it was Mary. I think it was Mary. Yes. Yeah, she was. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was Martha. See, and I would think Martha just because she was the kind of weaker one, or at least she's portrayed that way. Um, so, yeah. So, again, even that point, I have to remember to keep repeating, you know, repeating these things. But that, yes, I was going to use the uh, John 8. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's good to talk about that. Jesus saying that I am the resurrection, and it was only because he had that conversation with Martha that he was able to bring that point up. So, I mean, what this just kind of outside of this lesson, what that does when all of these little details come together, it just gives me more assurance that this is God's word. Because anyone can tell a story, but there's going to be some detail. Over 2,000 years of examination and just of the New Testament, then even more thousands of years of parts of the Old Testament, and under all of this examination, nothing falls apart. That all of these little details are in place. And anytime you, you study a passage, and then you see something else over in three books away, and you see that that just lines up perfectly with this, but it's a tiny little detail that nobody would be paying attention to unless you're looking at it with a fine-tooth comb. And when you see those things line up, it just gives me so much more confidence in, in God's word and just, just knowing, especially early on in my faith, I really, you know, relied on those things. It was, you know, I was trying to be very logical. And of course, God deals with our logic and deals with our reason, but God exists so far above what we can reason on our own. Um, so I think God really, you know, blessed me to be able to see those little things early, read books that talked about it, and that built my faith. And I, I would say that if you're ever looking at these types of stories or events, especially the, about Lazarus, because John 11, John 11 is a long chapter, 60-something verses, I believe. So, you know, when you're looking at that, you're seeing all these details kind of line up to something that's said in First or Second Corinthians, you know, two decades later. It's just such a great encouragement and blessing. So thank, thank you both for, sh for sharing that. There's some, oh, Tina. Mm -hmm. That's a great point that, that Jesus, after that conversation with Martha, asked her, do you believe? Um, and I think we see that in other places. Even you know, when they talked about uh, when Peter and the, the disciples came to Jesus and they're talking and saying, well, this is what all the people are saying about you. These are all the rumors you know, that you're maybe this one or you're this one or you're you know, Elijah coming back or maybe you're the, the prophet. Who are you? He said, who do you say that I am? And, and, and when we, again, when we repeat these facts and say what we're so, especially in this country, I mean, you know, no matter what's happening today and what things we hear in the news, this is a country where you can't walk five feet without seeing a Bible. We have the Bible on our phones. You know, you have how many podcasts and YouTube channels and even TikTok and other things that are meant to strengthen us and bolster our faith. And, and we have all these things, and it's really easy to just kind of make it a mundane part of life, our faith. 
rather than really examining, do we actually believe this? Do we live by this? Or are they just facts that we're used to hearing and we just easily repeat it back? So, um, yeah, so let me go on to the, to the, so the first one was Emmanuel. I think that's where I left off. Talking about, um, so again, the title's the deity. Emmanuel, and that was the name that he was given at birth when, the, um, when his birth was, when his uh, conception was announced. Um, in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, he is called Lord. And notice the Bible, he is called Lord at times, but he is called the Lord of Lords. Because the, the term Lord sometimes was used you know, of others who had authority over an, over an area. We even today will say we pay rent to our landlord. Um, so, you know, that term Lord by itself didn't always denote uh, deity. It didn't always, but it did many times when, when Jesus came. So he was called him my Lord and my God. Or, again, he's talked about as the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So that above anyone who has authority anywhere, he is their Lord. He is the Lord of all. And the last one is John 8, 58. And again, he's uh, called I am. He calls himself that. And this is a case where the, um, where the Jews were challenging him, and they were bringing up their ancestry and saying that they are uh, children of Abraham. And they are the real children of God because they're children of Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Abraham rejoiced. To see my day. Abraham in the Old Testament put his faith in the coming Messiah. He put his faith in God's solution to deal with his sin because there was nothing he could do, no matter how much he sacrificed, how much he even tithed, nothing that he can do to get rid of his sin. And he knew that. And so he lived by faith. He 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 served God and he walked in faith of the future Messiah, the future promise that was coming to deal with his sin. And so when Jesus comes, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. This is what Abraham lived for. And you're talking about Abraham and your sons of Abraham are going to throw it in my face? When he challenged them in the way that they lived, the way they were not serving God? And <clears throat> he said, before Abraham was, I am. And and if you remember in uh, Exodus, Exodus 3.14, when um, God commissioned Moses to go before, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and go before Pharaoh. And after he gave them all excuses, he then said, okay, fine, I'm going to go. But who shall I say sent me? And that's when God revealed his name, I am. And he's the great I am. And so for Jesus to use that term and to say I am, he wasn't just, you know, mixing up grammar. He used it on purpose because he was giving himself that title. In fact, in John, he, he uses it, I think it's seven times, that there's these statements of where he says, I am, I am. I am the great shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am, I am, over and over. And he says, here, just before Abraham was, I am. Gives himself that title. And every time he does, the Jews try to kill him. You know, this might be the time where they, they said he picked up stones. And immediately they heard, I am up. Oh, that's it. He's blaspheming. He got to go. Right? Because they took blasphemy very seriously. So every time he made a claim, this is why when people sometimes say, Jesus never claimed to be God. There's a lot of people who picked up a lot of stones when Jesus was walking around because he made claims to be God constantly. So that's him saying, I am. Again, that he is God. So he's fully man. He is fully God. And the reason why, again, it's so important for him to be both is because now he stands in our place. So he stood on our place at Calvary because he was a perfect sinless man who could die in the place of humanity and all those who would put their faith and trust in him. But now he stands as a mediator, the God-man between God and man, if it wills. He's, he serves as a, as a bridge. We can have a right relationship with God and the Godhead because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the fact that he is God now and that he has all power in his hands. And he can declare us holy 
And so when God sees us, if we have put our faith and trust in him, when he sees us, he sees us as righteous. He sees us as holy. He sees us as living the perfect life that Jesus has lived. And that's why it's important to acknowledge both. Go sway. So why do we, why do we, why don't we use Emmanuel? Why do we use? You know, I don't know. If somebody else knows, somebody may be behind you over in the corner. But no, <laughs> but I, you know, I mean, it's something that when I, I think I got saved, I looked at it and was like, why didn't they name, why didn't they name him something different? Like you said, this was going to be his name. But I think it was just a declaration of his, like he shall be called him. He shall be called God with us. Um, maybe differently than this is the name that's going on his birth certificate, but it's, it was served more as a title. And at least that's how I've always taken that, but I haven't given it a lot of deep study, I'll admit that. Um, but I've always taken it as that, is that we're, this is a declaration about who he is, who he will be, and everybody will see that. They will know that this is God with us, even those who, who didn't believe him after his crucifixion. Um, you know, the centurion says, surely this is the son of God. You know, and, and kind of acknowledge that then. And so it seems like it was this, this title that was given um, to him or would be given or this declaration that he is God with us um, even in, in human form. See, that's what I'm saying. That's why we say it. So. So, so Pastor Bobby just brought out the fact that the Jews always pictured God as being far away and far off, and that Jesus coming would now be something, a complete contrast to that, and God being with us, God being among us, walking around us, ministering to us, and now, in general, being more, in their eyes, more accessible. And so, you know, again, it was this, this kind of contrast, it was this... this this title was declaration about who Jesus was and who he would be. Um, so, yeah, at least that's the. <laughs> Thank you. That is, that is a good question because it says that, you know, call him Emmanuel. And they said, okay, we'll call him Jesus. So, yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I had something uh, in mind, but I'm going to uh, skip this part because I want us to kind of think about an application to this. So in the last section of this, uh, I think. Um, one of the other things we see about um, Jesus is that he is the coming king. You know, I said he is the Lord of Lords. I also say he's the king of kings. So he is the coming king, and he uh, has a kingdom. And the Bible says that when we get saved, we get saved out of darkness into his light. We get saved out of the kingdom of darkness, some passages say that, into God's kingdom. And so we are now a part of God's kingdom, but Jesus is actually coming back to uh, reign as king. And I want us to turn to one passage that really, it's in 2 Peter chapter 3. And it really talks about, uh, or it shows us what our response should be. Again, I wish we had more, more time to kind of go through this, but, you know, like I said, this is really two lessons condensed into one. Um, so Second Peter chapter 3, and if you're kind of looking in your Bible, you hit Hebrews, which is kind of long, just keep going uh, past that. So Second Peter chapter 3. And so we're looking at Jesus Christ as, as king, and he has this kingdom, and besides being God and besides being man, it's kind of another Another title, the perfection of the of the God man. So, Second Peter chapter three. We're going to start at verse three, and just kind of walk through walk through this a couple verses at a time. 
So 2 Peter 3, 3 to 14 says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So stop there. We just, what we see here is probably what many of us have heard whether we've heard it in academia or we've heard it from friends and family or we've said it ourselves to other people when they talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel, that you're still waiting for Jesus to come back. It's been 2,000 years. That's, that's, a, that's a myth. That's a fairy tale. Jesus isn't coming back. And, and Peter talks about these mockers who are going to come, and they're going to be mocking true believers because we are waiting for our king to come. And they're going to say, this, Jesus died, and that's it. And this is proof that all that you believe is wrong. All of this stuff about Christianity, because Jesus was going to return, and when, if they know a little bit about the Bible, they'll say, others who lived after Jesus died expected him to return in their lifetime. And he didn't. If you read the, the letters to the Thessalonians, that's what, partly what they're about getting comfort because they were so worried that they missed the rapture. They missed Jesus coming back. They missed the return and maybe they just weren't living right. And they missed it because they expected it to be immediate. And rather than be immediate, we're waiting and we're almost at 2,000 years now. So these mockers are going to come. That's what Peter says. I think we see them in our lives. Um, Verse 5 goes on to say, for when they maintain this It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so what he says there, just quickly, is they're wrong. They're wrong. The earth has not just remained the same. That matter of fact, there was a cataclysmic judgment that came and changed the face of the earth, changed the literal face of the earth because it was so devastating, talking about the flood that happened in Noah's day. <clears throat> so they're wrong in thinking that when God says something is going to happen and judgment is going to come, they're saying it won't come because it's been a long time. And we can look back in history and know that, that they're wrong it just in that basic statement. So let's look at verse 8. Um, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So he's saying God is waiting So that you can get saved. All of us here who are believers, God waited and withheld his judgment. And Jesus withheld coming back into his final kingdom until for us to get saved, for us to hear the gospel, stop being hard-hearted and actually believe it and be saved. And it's his patience with us that is causing him to wait before bringing that, that final judgment and then ushering in the kingdom. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Amen. And that is why it matters. Even him coming in his kingdom should should challenge us today to live in a holy way. Verse 11 uh, says that, and this is an exclamation, not a question, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. And then verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. 
And that's what our lives should be aiming towards. Amen. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Our precious God, we want to thank you for the truth that we find in your word, that Jesus was not only fully man so he could stand in our place and take our punishment on the cross, but that he is fully God so that he is a mediator for us today and that he also gives us power to serve, power to love each other. And I pray, God, that those things and also knowing that Jesus is coming as the righteous ruling king, a king that this earth has never had, a king that will rule in perfection, that that would spur us to righteous living today. I pray, God, that we would not cling to the things of the world which you said are just burning up. Those things are going to be destroyed. I pray that we won't let those things come and pull us away from you, Lord. So I pray that you will be with us now as we are soon going to spend uh, a time of worship together, hearing your word preached, hearing more of your word read, being able to sing together, that we will do it all for your glory and your honor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.